Well, the phrase, be afraid, be very afraid, is a line, a phrase that originated in the 1986 film, The Fly. It is uh, something very appropriate today. Fear is something we're very familiar with uh, these days, especially in light of a uh, global pandemic, not to mention our numerous social political issues that seem to be new ones about every single day. Add to all of that, uh, current kind of fear stirring around, add to all of that, uh, how technology today can serve to to spread fear almost instantly. Uh, In a matter of seconds, sites like Twitter or Facebook or news networks can spread widespread chaos with some breaking news from around the globe, right? can come to you instantly. Um, It used to be that we had no idea what was going on in any other like state, much less any other part of the world, and maybe would never know because news never got there. If we did hear something, it would, be, it would take a long time to get through word of mouth, right, to finally get the news to, to us. Uh, eventually, we had, uh, and as technology grew, we got the next day's paper, uh, we get the radio, uh, we get TV evening news to hear of something else that is happening, something else that we could be possibly afraid of. And it's, and it's now, now it's kind of almost instantaneous fear, right? It just kind of happens. I was having lunch uh, this week with Fred Binge, and I didn't ask him if I could share this, but I'm going to share it anyway, Fred. Um, but uh, we were having lunch, you know, and, and his phone starts going off, and it's his ringtone is actually the sound of, like, someone hit the nuclear button, you know? It's like, dinner, dinner, and I'm like, ah, oh, what's going on? I'm like, someone hit the button. Um, you know, but that's kind of like the way it is. Our phones are like that, aren't they? They kind of almost like blaring news of some news alert that's happening and something else to be afraid of. Well, that medium of radio broadcast actually was used for this very purpose um, back in 1938 to spread widespread panic, on purpose, actually. It was a guy named Orson uh, Welles. He was a well-known broadcaster who took advantage of the new radio format one evening. People tuned in thinking they were going to hear um, uh, music or an opera they were listening to and uh, a concert. And instead, they got this uh, kind of inserted into the, into the music was... Uh, Wells's performance of H.G. Wells's novel, The War of the Worlds. You can imagine how this went. Um, he was, uh, the concert interrupted frequently by Wells's. he was masquerading as a news announcer, giving frenzied updates of a Martian invasion happening on Earth right now. The result? Thousands of listeners panicked. They began to, to raid the stores, stockpiling their, their, their supplies, barricading their homes against the, the idea of supposed alien invasion. When it became clear <laughs> that it was, uh, it was a hoax, uh, they were not amused, as you can imagine. They actually went to his office and burned his building down in retaliation. Uh, it's the American spirit, right? That's what we do. Um, Throw tea barrels in the ocean, light stuff on fire. That's kind of what we do. But as, uh, as much as the, the radio program like this or even something like a, a film or a real news or events can strike fear in us, there is something in this passage we read today that is to be feared above all other things. It's the final judgment before Jesus Christ where we all, each individually, have a divine appointment that we cannot miss. Matthew, the writer of this book we're reading, uh, takes much of chapters 24 and 25 of Matthew to talk about the judgment, especially the, the final judgment before Jesus. And, I, and I, as you look through this, it's in, in our passage today is the, the kind of the end of that. It's, uh, I would say it serves as a crescendo, crescendo of the judgment passages. 
And I know it's not comfortable, okay? No, it's not an easy passage to look at. Certainly is not going to, you know, tickle ears of people. You may wonder why you even came this morning, maybe why you're watching online, why you got out of bed, sit on your couch, right? You're trying to figure out, like, why are we doing this? And the question, though, we need to ask, okay? The question we need to ask is when Jesus returns, and he'll return soon, when he does, who is exactly on his side and who's not? Is it those who faithfully attend church? Is it those who can quote about anything in the Bible? Is it those who are maybe good, moral, upstanding citizens? Is it those who support Judeo-Christian values and ethics? Like, what, what is the criteria? In this passage, Jesus is going to tell us what is going to happen when he comes back. And he's going to show us and really begin to, to tell us what are the marks of a true follower of him. Who, it has, who has been transformed by grace? Who has been given a new heart? Who has really believed in Jesus? And who has maybe just said they did, but their lives haven't been changed, or hearts hasn't been changed? You see, that may be new to you. You may think like, well, aren't everybody, isn't everybody a Christian? I mean, we are Indiana for crying out loud. Like, right, we're, we're all that, right? No, that's not quite how it work. works now or then. You can go through the Gospels, and you can find that throughout Jesus' ministry, there were always people who followed him, and I may put that in quotes, who followed him, but they didn't really believe in him, didn't really love him. Um, many of them, they, they claimed to like Jesus. As I've told you before, they were just kind of in it for the free entertainment, right? It's like, well, this is the new show in town. This is kind of fun to watch. You know, they're in, they're in it for the, the free meals maybe they got out of this, the free Jesus care, as I call it, right? You get all your ailments taken care of. You get healed. This is wonderful. We're going to follow Jesus because we get all of these things. There were others who claimed to like Jesus, and really they liked him because he, they thought he lined up with their kind of political agendas. Uh, he was someone they could, as it were, vote for who would get rid of the Romans, Take them back to the good old days and get them, get them back as a nation, not get rid of these blasted Romans that are overseeing them and ruling over them in an unjust way. Still happening today. Listen to John chapter 2. Here's what Jesus says uh, with the writer of, of, of uh, the Gospel of John. John said, now when he was in Jerusalem, the Passover feast, is speaking of Jesus, many believed in his name. All right, so stop there. Hold on. Many believed in his name. You're like, oh, this is fantastic, right? This is revival. This is a great thing. Many believed in his name. When they saw the signs he was doing, right, the miracles, the things that were happening. Now, this is maybe something you never read. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. So right there, the very beginning of the Gospel of John, we find Jesus going, there's a lot of people here following me that they want something from me. They don't really believe me as Messiah. They don't really love me as their Savior. They, they want me to do something for them, and they're happy to follow me as long as I do those things. There were others, we find out later as the Gospels continue to go on, who you could have sworn were followers of Jesus. I mean, they, they hung out with Jesus. They were good friends with him. Uh, they made enormous sacrifices, even of their own personal lives, uh, to be to align with Jesus. And yet we find that sometimes these people had other motives. One that may come to your mind if you're familiar with the Bible was a guy named Judas Iscariot, right? He was very much looked like a follower of Jesus. Very much was, he was one of the disciples, the closest you could get. And yet turned out to be a fraud. Turned out to be, you know, turned in Jesus for a little bit of money, made a little bit of coin here, turned him in, right? Sold him out. Jesus, uh, in the Gospels, has worn many hats, okay? Many different kind of hats, I would say. 
He's one that had of a teacher. We'll find that. You can go to Matthew 5 through 7 to see Jesus' teacher, Jesus, okay? We've seen him um, wear the hat of a healer. We've seen him wear the hat of miracle worker, right? Even you could say almost social worker, like helping, working with people. We've seen all kinds of hats that Jesus has worn. But today, he's going to put on the hat of a judge, okay? Hat of a judge. And he's going to examine the evidence, okay? I want you, this is very important for you to follow with me because you can not understand this passage uh, if you don't. He's going to examine the evidence. He's going to talk about how in the future, okay, still to come, we all will stand before him individually, and he's going to examine specifically those who say they believed in him and see if they really did. Understand that many, this is again maybe shocking to you, but many in this kind of future courtroom scene could be carrying Jesus flags with them, okay? They could be rocking out to their Christian music, right, in their AirPods as they're standing in line for the judgment. They, they could be, many of them could be former missionaries and pastors and elders and deacons and Sunday school teachers that are in this line. And Jesus is going to detect who's the frauds here. Who are the swindlers? Who are the imposters? And the evidence he looks for, as you've heard read, is quite shocking. Understand as well, in this future courtroom scene, he is looking for, he's looking for a pulse, He's looking for a pulse. He's looking to see who, who's alive here in this line and who is spiritually dead. He's not going to say, and listen clearly, he's not going to say that the evidence that is presented is what forgives a person of their sin or what makes them a Christian or what allows them into heaven. He's not going to say that the evidence is, is what makes that. He's simply saying that the evidence proves that a person has truly come to faith in Christ. Does that make sense? The evidence proves that they truly have been transformed by grace, that they understand the gospel. They've gotten it, right? They're alive spiritually. Um, my, my oldest kids there, are, are my twins, or my oldest, they're 17. And, um, and I remember when they were first born. And when they were first born, I remember um, going to the hospital, you know, and I, I, I mean, I was the only child. I'd never held a baby in my life. Uh, I was so excited. I put on my, all the white garb that the doctors told me to put on right from head to toe. And uh, I find out, you know, Sarah's going to have a C-section. And I'm figuring, I don't even still try to figure out what that even meant at the time, right? And so um, not ever seen this before. And so, but I find out that she's not going to be really alert for this, right? It's going to be kind of, I'm going to be alert for this. And so they, uh, as they go in, they put this needle in her back. And I, I could have sworn it was about the length of my arm, right, to kind of numb her and put her, put her out and lay her down and put this, like, clear, I would say clear translucent uh, uh, sheet <laughs> to try to hide what's actually happening on the other side right by her neck. And if you've been done this before, or husbands, you've seen this before, you know what I'm talking about. And so they pull a chair up to me next to her head, and I get to sit there, and I'm like, okay, this is fun. You know, this is exciting. I don't do blood. Um, they couldn't mute the noise either of what they were doing, okay, when they were delivering this. So it, I was a little uneasy with it. But I'm sitting there, and, uh, and I can hear all of a sudden, I hear this, um, I hear this sound of, of the doctors. I hear them say, number one is out, right? Number one's out. I stand up. You know, I'm like, number one's out, you know? And I hear some code language that for, for the doctors, communication, nurses, and all of a sudden, the doors fling open, and people come running in. And I am, I'm going to try to make it through this one. Um, there's no sound. <clears throat> He's not breathing. And uh, they take him over to a table. They're trying all kinds of things to clear his throat out and hit his feet and um, trying to get all kinds of ways to, um, to, to make him come alive. 
And I just remember at that moment in the hospital, Sarah's out, and I'm, I'm like alone, and I'm just dropped to my knees, crying and praying, God, please save my boy, right? And um, I remember at that moment, they're doing all this stuff. There was a moment where finally was the greatest sound I'd ever heard. Within a, a year, it was the worst sound I think I'd ever heard. But within, at that moment, the best sound I ever heard was crying, right? Screaming, started to yell, started to scream. And I was like just overjoyed at the sound of that. Why? Because it was evidence that he was alive, right? The, the passage has been clear. The lungs are working. He's breathing on his own, right? This is good. This is a good thing. I know he's alive based on that, right? The, the sound of his voice didn't make him alive. It showed that he was alive. And that, in our passage, is what Jesus is doing. Who's alive and who's not? Who has been transformed by grace and who is not? The, the cry, the sound is the, their life has been changed. Their heart has been changed. And so that's what he's looking for in this. And the signs that Jesus is looking for, the signs of life, really, as we've been looking at the Gospel of Matthew, is how you treat people. We've been looking at Matthew and seeing Jesus' treatment of people, and he's, he's going to look and see if the same heart, the same behavior is in those who claim to follow him, who claim to be transformed by him. This is what a, is a, a transformed life looks like, okay? It, it changes. When you come to Christ, it changes how you see people. It changes how you treat people. So do you have a spiritual pulse today? Are you spiritually alive? Do you have the evidences of a new birth in your life. And understand this. Jesus is not asking how much you pray, how much you've read your Bible, how much you've come to church, right? He's more interested in how you've treated people. He's not looking for a date. He's not looking for a card you signed or a baptismal certificate that you received. He's not asking for any of those things in this courtroom. He's looking for evidence that you are alive by how you treat people. And many times people are very different from you. So here's what we're gonna look at, Okay. As we go through Matthew 25, we're going to see the fact of the judgment, the criteria for the judgment, the results of the judgment, and the gospel in the judgment, okay? Number one, so hang with me, all right? The fact of the judgment. We begin in verse 31. It says, the Son of Man, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. I just want you to imagine that scene for a moment. World is in absolute chaos, Injustice floods the streets. Sin reigns as king. People have lost their minds, right? World is completely shot. Eh, not too far from today. And all of a sudden, in that moment of chaos and uncertainty and selfishness and all the stuff going on in the world, a sonic boom of sorts happens. <laughs> Causes everyone to stop what they're doing and look up to the sky. And, and what they see for some, or many maybe, it makes their stomachs a little queasy. They look up. It's not a bird. It's not a plane. It's not Superman, right? It's Jesus, and he's coming back. And he's not coming back as meek and mild Jesus here, okay? As some people may perceive him, right? You know, we're carrying lambs with him. That's not the case. He's not coming back that way. He's coming back, I say, like Fight Island Jesus here, okay? He's coming back as judge. This is, this is, gonna, this is gonna be serious. He's got fire coming from his eyes. Look at verse 32. Before him will be gathered all the nations. He will separate people, one from another, as, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. So here's Jesus, puts on his judge robes and starts lining people up. And it's a, it's a mass of humanity, right? With even those who have already died in history, being resurrected and standing in line. Each of us, okay? Each of us. This is a future judge. So each of us are in this line. It's a line of the entire human race. Can you imagine standing in this line for judgment? What, what would be going through your head? What would be going through your mind? I mean, there, there are no phones here. 
There's probably no one to talk to. You're not, it's not group meeting with Jesus. This is individuals, okay? So there's, you're by yourself, just you and your thoughts. And as you look around the sea of humanity and you see people from every tribe, tongue, people, nation, more than you can count. And like the Red Sea, Jesus kind of parts the people and puts them in two lines. Which side are you on? Right? Are you on his right hand or his left hand? Each line has a variety of people, too. I don't want you to pick, maybe in your mind, you've got, it, you've got it, your mind kind of made up of who these people look like in both these lines, but actually there's a quite a variety in both of them. As you look around, it looks like people in both lines seem to be singing praise songs to Jesus. You can see men dressed as kings, women as queens in both lines. You can see uh, people with suits and ties on in both lines. You can see people with with hoodies on in both lines. You can see young in both lines, old in both lines, rich in both lines, poor in both lines. It's just a variety of people in both lines. They're not divided based on some kind of socioeconomic or political or racial or even denominational basis, okay? It's not broken up that way. It's a wide variety of people in both lines. You say, what? now, before we move to the next point, maybe you ask the question, I know I did, like, why is Jesus called sheep and goats? What's he separating here? What does it mean? The original readers would have understood the delineation that Jesus is making. These two animals often grazed together, and the shepherd would separate them many times, mostly because the goats were more sensitive to the cold than the sheep, right? And the goats were put in kind of warmer locations, away from the wind chill, the winds, or next to a fire, okay? And that's exactly what Jesus is doing, right? The judgment day is coming. The goats are going to get hot. That's kind of what's happening here. Number two, criteria, all right? Criteria for judgment. Verse 34, the judge will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Jesus now pulls out the evidence for these two groups to see who has really experienced his grace and who has really become a follower of him, right? And how would you expect him to clear this up? What's, he gonna, what's gonna be the criteria here? And maybe, maybe you'd think, okay, maybe you'd think he's gonna check, again, check for Bible knowledge, you know, have some quizzes here, Maybe the total amount of hours devoted to prayer in your lifetime. Maybe the amount of church attendance you've had. The number of hours served in the church, right? Proper political alignment. Whatever different criteria you think he may have. And I'm sure that's what everyone in line is starting to do now. They're starting to tally up, like, try to write their resume here. Okay, I gotta, gotta get my stuff ready. They're preparing resumes for Judge Jesus. They're writing down their, maybe their church attendance, the number of Christian songs or hymns they've memorized, how many times they've read their Bibles, how many times they've prayed all those different things. And about this time, maybe word begins to spread, I imagine, through the line, that, um, that the judgment is gonna be based on how people treated Jesus. That's the criteria, how people treated Jesus. And so, so you're thinking, maybe the people are thinking in line going, okay, oh, this will be easy then. I mean, I treated Jesus with the highest of respect. Right? I mean, I, I thanked him for my food every time before I ate. I sung songs to him with quite a bit of emotion, actually, within the church. I read his Bible. I even put his Bible on top of my other books. So I went to school so everybody knew that it was important to me. Like, I've done, I mean, I am, I'm good. But Jesus does something really interesting here. He doesn't even go there at all. Not that those things aren't important, but he doesn't go there. He doesn't say, notice, he doesn't say, I was bored and you prayed to me. I was ignored and you read about me. I was sad and you praised me. Doesn't say that at all. That's not the criteria. Instead, he says this, verse 35. I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me a drink. I was a stranger, you welcomed me. I was, I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. What? <laughs> hungry? I mean, they actually fed him? 
they were thirsty and they actually gave him something to drink. They, Jesus was a stranger and they visited him. Jesus was in prison and they came to him. When was he in prison? At this time, everyone's just confused, right? I mean, everyone's trying to figure out what in the world is this criteria? You know, it's like a goat on artificial turf. Like, this isn't, something's not right here, right? Something's, something's strange. What is Jesus talking about? Remember, this is the future, okay? This is a future judgment. You and I are there. And we weren't even around when Jesus was walking the earth, right? Unless someone here is a time traveler, okay? This wasn't happening. None of, none of us were there, okay? So what in the world is this? We weren't there for him when he was here. How in the world could they, could we, have done these things for Jesus? In verse 37, the righteous will answer. They had the same question. Lord, when did, when did we see you hungry or feed you and thirsty and give you something to drink? And they got to go through all these questions. They, they can't recall a single time in their minds, where they actually saw Jesus and they actually fed him or clothed him. Jesus wasn't walking the earth for many of them during their lifetimes. I mean, these guys in this line are probably saying, you know, I mean, Jesus, I mean, we fed some people who needed food. I mean, we gave water to some people who were thirsty. We let some people crash at our place when they were passing through town, had no place to stay. We gave some of our clothes away to people who, who needed it. We visited the hospitals when people were stuck there, assisted living centers, right? We, we went visit people who were sick and lonely. We visited the prison, right? We prayed for people there. But Jesus, we did all that, but we never saw you there. <laughs> so what are you talking about? And so and understand their language. These guys are just thinking of the times. They did, notice here, what came naturally. They gave, they served, they helped Right? The marginalized, the poor, the weak, the lonely, the needy. It wasn't that they were trying to make God love them or trying to be accepted by God for their activity, but rather they just were doing what became naturally because they were followers of Jesus and their lives were changed, their hearts were changed, and they just did these things. Instead of seeking to be served, now they, they served. Instead of seeking to gain, they, they gave. Instead of seeking to make much of themselves, they were now seeking to make much of Jesus. And it was all so natural. Why? Because they were alive. They were in relationship with Jesus. Everything changed regarding how they saw and treated people, especially those in need and those different than them. Their astonishment now, this is important, their astonishment, these people, their astonishment clearly shows that they were not doing these things to earn Jesus' favor, Right? Because if that was the case, if that's what they were trying to do, they would have said something along the lines of, you got that right, Jesus. And don't forget about the other time that we did this and that, right? They're, they're going to continue down the list. They, they were living in light of the cross, in light of the love Jesus had shown them, in light of what Jesus had done for them. They could testify how this not only was not always the case. They could talk about how there was a time in our life where money was our God one time, right? Comfort ease, fame, all those things were prized in our life. But one, at one time, everything changed for us. They understood the Bible. They understood life. It was not about them and what they needed to do for God. It was about Jesus and what he had come to do for them. They were transformed in how they loved people. They, they, they used to size people up as better or worse than themselves based on maybe their upbringings or their denominational ties or their political alignment. And now they see them and all people as in the same boat as them. We're just all broken sinners. They used to look out in the world and see, well, divide people up. There's the good people and there's the bad people. Now they look out in the world and they see there's unrepentant bad people and repentant bad people, okay? Very different way of looking at people. They used to use people 
to gain power and positions and stuff. And now they use their power, their positions, their stuff to help people, you see? The whole world has changed. This was always the result of what happened. When people came to know God, when people came into relationship with God, their hearts were changed, their lives were changed. Look at the Old Testament, some couple passages, Isaiah 58. I read this a few weeks ago. It said, is not this the fast I choose? This is God speaking. People are thinking in this passage early on in Matthew, sorry, in Isaiah 58, they're asking the questions of like, all right, Jesus, what, you know, what do you want us to do? Okay, you want us to fast? You want us to abstain from food? You want us to go to the temple? You want us to do those things? And here's his response. Is not this the fast that I choose? Here's, here's what I want. Would you loose the bonds of wickedness, undo the straps of the yoke, let the press go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? And when you see the, the naked, to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Hmm. Ezekiel 18.7, the righteous man does not oppress anyone, but restores to the debtor his pledge, commits no robbery, gives his bread to the hungry, covers the naked with a garment. This is the way Jesus lived, right? We've seen this. I mean, that's the style of living we've seen Jesus live. We've seen on every page of the Gospel of Matthew. He saw people like no one else did, right? He served people that no one else would serve. He had compassion on people that no one else cared about. And it was the religious people, the people who seemed to know their Bibles pretty well, that really got mad at him, right? They got very upset with Jesus because of the people that he was seeking to help. They didn't even see those people. This is also the way the followers of Jesus lived in the New Testament. The apostles taught that true faith would demonstrate itself through deeds of mercy. Right? It would, a transformed heart would change the way you see people and treat people. Paul, in the end of Ephesians, when he's, he's leaving Ephesus and he's praying with the elders there in Ephesus, and he's never going to come back there again, and he tells them, exhorts them at the very end, he says this, in all things I've shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. And remember the words of our Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it's more blessed to give to receive. That was his last words to them. Hebrews 10, we looked at this book before. Verse 34 says, you had compassion on those in prison. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and abiding one, right? That was a, that's a transformed life. Possessions weren't prized, right? James 1.27, religion is, that is pure and undefiled before God and the Father's this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and keep oneself unstained from the world. This pattern through the Old Testament, the New Testament, people who, who were, had faith in God, people who trusted in Jesus, whose lives were transformed, was a very similar pattern. I've told you this so many times, but it's so important you understand church history and understand how the gospel moved from, from the time it was written until, the, until we got to today. And I've told you that through the first hundred years that the whole Roman Empire went from Christianity being a very marginal kind of like very few people to all of a sudden being the majority of the Roman Empire you know, by 400 A.D., and really one of the major causes of the gospel spreading to people was the demonstration and care and concern for people that no one else cared about. Emperor Julian, one of the last emperors of Rome before it collapsed, was so upset, he hated Christians. <laughs> he wanted to revive the paganism that they had before in their olden days and felt that would help them as a nation. And he tried and tried, he built these temples, put all this money and government money into building these temples, and people just, they wouldn't come. They kept going to Christians. Here's what he said. Here's, here was his assessment. He said this. These irreverent Galileans, so they called them, so that was kind of a, you know, a, a pejorative term given to the Christians. You know, the Galileans were considered like hodunk kind of out there in the country, Galilee kind of thing. These irreverent Galileans not only feed their own poor, but ours as well, ours also, welcoming them into their agape. That was kind of their feasts and their, their food they would have. They attract them. I love this. 
They attract him as children are attracted with cakes. He says, while the pagan priests neglect the poor, the hated Galileans devote themselves to works of charity and by a display of false compassion have established and given effect to their pernicious errors. He's like, see their love feasts, their tables spread out for the needy. Such practice is common among them and it causes a contempt for our gods. This was an unbeliever, very much an unbeliever, just given the assessment of why Christianity blew up the way it did and grew to where we are today. Because whenever the gospel settled into people's hearts, they were transformed. It wasn't a club they were signing up for, right? They were signing up for a club to become a Christian. They, they were becoming followers of Jesus and joining together. We call that now church, right? And collectively, they were moving out, and they were treating people different. And they were telling people about the transformation they had experienced, right? And they're telling people about the grace of God through Christ and the cross, right? And they're, and they're loving people and caring for people no one else would. And that is what, how it spread, Back in our section here, back in Matthew 25, look at verse 40. The king will answer them, okay? Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Jesus kind of just blows their minds on this one. <laughs> these guys are, I imagine them saying, like, you mean that guy in prison was you? That lady in the assistant living center was, was, was you? That, that, that little kid we gave food to, that was, that was you, Jesus? And Jesus goes, every time, every time you helped out of response of grace, of my grace, every time you helped the marginalized and you were actually helping me. Everyone at the judgment is absolutely stunned. They realized that they were, they were actually loving Jesus when they loved the marginalized. I mean, that's a big category, but I mean, marginalized people push to the edges of society, people that everyone else neglects because, because Jesus identifies himself with them. Listen to some Proverbs. These are pretty shocking Proverbs. Listen to this. Proverbs 14, 31. Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, capital M, that's God, Proverbs 17, 5, whoever mocks the poor insults his maker, again, being God. Proverbs 19, 17, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord. You see the connection? God identifies. And throughout the Old Testament, there was the orphan, the widow, the poor, and the sojourner would be the typical phrase. Those four people were, there was even laws created in the Old Testament. Go read Leviticus. If you're, if you're reading through the Bible this year, you'll be getting there soon. Don't quit. I know it always ends right there in Leviticus. Keep going. But there's laws. All, just look for them. I remember one year I did my yearly Bible reading. I just looked for this. I just looked for mercy. I looked for that theme and how God looked after these kinds of, pe- kinds of people. Totally changed everything for me when I looked at it. But you get Leviticus. There's all these laws, and you kind of just read through them fast. But look at what the, who they're crafted after. <laughs> look at the, the rules and the laws for the people of Israel and who, how they're to treat people and leave the edges of their fields open, right, for someone to come by and get some food. I mean, all these different laws put into place to protect and look after those kind of people. So in our passage, Jesus turns to those on his left now. Imagine, now this is the people on his right, people who are coming in, okay? He looks to the left, and I imagine they're wide-eyed and terrified, okay? Their resumes they have built of church attendance, the hours of reading the Bible, the hours of praying, maybe their voting records. They've just kind of just crumpled them all up in a bowl, and they're in a waste paper basket. They're like, okay, this ain't going to work. <laughs> this is not going to cut it. They claim to have been transformed by grace, but it was, didn't happen. It was all a game. They were kind of revealed to be little Judases. Look what he says, verse 41. Then he'll say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. I was hungry, you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was stranger, you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick in prison, you did not visit me. And again, I'm sure they're all thinking, okay, this is a very important thought that you yourself may have on this one. I'm sure they may be thinking, Jesus, if you just would have told us 
if you just would have told us that that was you that was hungry, if you just would have told us, we, I mean, we'd have, we'd, have, we'd have brought you some barbecue ribs. I mean, we'd have brought you some sushi. Do you like sushi, Jesus? I mean, I would have given you that if you needed that. Like, what did you want? Just give me the list, right? Tell me where you are. I'll go there. I'll make sure I'll take care of you. You should just let us know, Jesus, that you were needy. I mean, we'd have helped you out. You just didn't tell us. But they don't realize. It's a very important passage in the, in, the, uh, in the book of Acts where God makes it very clear. He doesn't need anything from us. Okay, listen to this. Um, well, actually, listen to, the, to Psalm 50. This is also in Acts. Psalm 50 says, For every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle of a thousand hills is mine. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness is mine. Right? It's like, I don't need anything from you. That's why in Acts 17, he'll say, I, I, don't have, I, don't need, I don't need to be served by human hands as though I needed anything. Right? He doesn't need anything from us. So this is, I don't keep saying this is super important, but just, just, I'm going to say it again. This is really important. <laughs> Jesus commands of us an obedience that can't be commanded. Jesus is requiring here a love that cannot be required. Only a new heart would cause them to love people, love the marginalized, and they didn't have it. If Jesus would have placed a divine sign on the forehead of every needy person and said, hi, I'm Jesus, right, love me, help me, they might have done it, actually. But you know what? If they would have done it, why they would have done it? Score points with God, right? It's not really love the person. I'm going to do this because this will score me some points with God. This will put me on his good side. Oh, hopefully his right side, not his left. Hope the scales balance out type of thing. They would have just not been moved with compassion. They would not have really loved people. They would have just used them to gain points with God. You see that? That's why I say it's a, it's a command that can't be commanded in some ways. Because compassion can't be commanded. You can't pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and go like, I'm going to have compassion. It's like, man, you, you got to have a changed heart for that. Right? You gotta have a changed heart for that. Luke 10. Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna step away. This is getting dangerous now. I'm step away from the pulpit. All right, Luke 10. It's my security blanket. I'm like, let's stay in the way. Luke 10. Okay, if you're familiar with this story, um, and you have in that Luke 10, you have the, the Good Samaritan, if you're familiar with that story, right? And there's this priest, and there's a Levite, and there's a guy's, these guys who are supposed to care for this poor guy on the ground, and they ignored him. Remember the story? They kind of walked to the other side, and there was one who, who helped, right? He was a Samaritan. That's why the story's called A Good Samaritan. Do you remember in the story, and you can cheat and look at Luke 10 if you want, but do you remember the story that Jesus said that he asked who, who actually was right or who was righteous in that? And, he, and remember the answer that people gave? The answer was he who had compassion. He who had compassion. What, what was he talking about? That person was transformed. That's why he helped them. He had compassion. You can't command that of somebody. It has to be from the inside of the heart, right? That's why Jesus doesn't give the list of like, this is what you must do. Bottom line is that these people didn't have the heart of Jesus because they didn't have a spiritual pulse. They were still dead, even though they may have been very religious people. Look at verse 44. They will also answer, um, Lord, when did we see you hungry, right? They go to the same questions. When did we minister to you? Like, what are you, what, you gotta give us a list here, Jesus. What are you talking about? And they're desperate now. They're, I imagine they're kind of looking for some red tape here, right? Some way to wiggle out of this thing. I, we got to get this case thrown out, Jesus. This isn't fair. <laughs> you didn't tell us you were hungry and thirsty and tired and all these things. We need a list. We're going to lawyer up, right? We're, we're going we're to call Saul. We're going to do this, right? We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna get in there, and we're going to fight to throw this out. You may not know Saul, but that's okay. They were not, they were not clear, they're saying, right? 
They were not clear on their requirements. Jesus, this isn't fair. So he says in verse 45, he'll answer them and say, and truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. Jesus tells them that how they treated the marginalized, the poor, the broken, the lonely, the distraught indicated, again, where their heart was. They just didn't love Jesus. They thought, maybe, that all that mattered maybe were the sins of commission, okay? You're like, what in the world is that? What's sins of commission? It's sins where we do the things we shouldn't do. We flat out disobey them, right? God said, do this, we don't do it. Or he says, don't do this, and we do it. Instead of commission. They no doubt list it off, and maybe you've, you've had this thought as well, or you've talked to people who've had this. Like, look, man, I didn't, I didn't kill anybody. I didn't cheat on my spouse, right? I didn't steal from the company. I mean, I'm going, I didn't do any of these sins. Many in this line, again, are probably highly moral, even church-attending people, but Jesus is just as serious about the sins of omission, the things, the things where we don't do the things we should this is the criteria for true saving faith. And listen to how James puts it. James chapter two, put it this way. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to them, you know, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? He says, so also, also faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, is dead. They're like, so wait a minute. Chris, are you saying that we got to have like, faith in Jesus plus all this list of things? No, I'm not saying that at all. James is simply saying, can the kind of faith that results in, 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 in not caring for people, can, can that kind of faith that doesn't transform the heart, is that, can that kind of faith save you? Can the kind of faith you're displaying save you in the judgment, provide evidence of new life at the judgment, the kind of faith that doesn't care for people? Faith alone saves but not a faith that remains alone. Does that make sense? Faith alone saves. Faith alone and God alone, through grace alone, faith alone, all that. Faith alone saves, but not a faith that stays, stays alone. Meaning like, if you have faith in God, it has to then transform you. There has to be a transformed heart in how you see and treat people. That's what he's talking about. True faith must transform the heart. Uh, Tim Keller, a pastor in New York City, put it this way. He said, look, a, a deep social conscience and a life poured out in deeds of service to others, especially the poor, is the inevitable sign of real faith and real connection with God. Just saying what's being said here. Number three, the results of the judgment. Look at verse 34 again. The, the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed of my father, this language is important, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So here, Jesus calls them blessed. That's a very churchy word. We don't use that word a lot outside of church circles. You're like, what does it actually mean? What does it mean to be Blessed. By God. It was something you can go to the Old Testament, people blessed by God, like Adam, Eve, Noah was blessed by God, Abraham, all those who love God in the Old Testament. What does that mean? To be blessed by God wasn't because of what they had done, therefore they got blessed, but because they had put their faith and trust in God, and then it was because of the grace of God now that they were blessed by God, right? Their hearts were transformed. You can read this in like Romans 4. You can see that with Abraham and David. It was by faith. Or look how Ephesians 1 puts it, verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us and the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins according to the riches of his grace. So these folks are in this line with the sheep, not because they have earned a spot, but because they have been blessed. They have been shown grace. And notice what it says, and they will do what with the kingdom? They will inherit the kingdom 
not earn the kingdom. That language, that word is really, really important again, right? They will inherit the kingdom, not earn the kingdom. To inherit something, someone has to die, right? And you get the inheritance as a result. That's exactly what it means. That's what happened with Jesus. He would die for us. We would inherit the kingdom because of his death for us, okay? That inheritance language is really important. It's exactly what Jesus did done, done for them. These guys have put their faith in Jesus alone to forgive them of their sin, make them acceptable to God. As a result, they live lives that reflected Jesus. They live lives that look like the gospel of Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, right? It looked like the book of Acts, like their lives were transformed. They couldn't do anything other than love people. They couldn't do anything else than look out for the vulnerable and the weak and have compassion on the hurting no matter, no matter who they were or what they looked like because, because that is what Jesus did. But the same couldn't be said of those on his left. They didn't have a new heart. They were still selfish and consumed with their own agendas. So look at verse 41 and verse 46. Verse 41 says, he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you curse into the eternal fire, prepare for the devil and his angels. Verse 46 and these will go away into eternal punishment, the righteous into eternal life. You say, did, you know, sometimes people ask me this one. You, you say, did, did Jesus really believe in hell? He did. He talked about it a lot, right? It, forever's a really long time and hell's really hot. Yes, those things he did talk about, and that is for real. And those, and those who were consumed with themselves and thus demonstrated that they didn't really believe in Jesus, he says, will go to hell. That is a real thing. We don't make apologies for that. That is truth. We're just telling you what the Bible says is what it gives us. There's no footnote. There's no exception clauses here, nothing. And note that hell is, what is it? It's separation from Jesus. So what is Jesus doing here in the judgment? He's simply giving them what they've always wanted. What did they want? themselves apart from him. They wanted nothing to do with the marginalized, the broken, the hurting, and that was Jesus, so he will give them their heart's desire. You can have a non-marginalized, non-broken, non-hurting people eternity forever by yourself, separated from God. And C.S. Lewis's uh, fictional work is called The Great Divorce, one of my favorite books by Lewis. I really enjoy it. It's a fictional work, and he kind of describes maybe what could happen, not, not maybe what could happen, but just kind of a scenario that, that he, he kind of imagines. He describes in this book a, a busload of people People in hell get on the bus, <laughs> all right? And they, they go up and they meet people that are from heaven. And they kind of meet in between. And the whole book is kind of, a, every chapter is a story of someone in, in heaven trying to convince someone who's from hell, hey, to give up their idol, give up their sin, and it, come with them, right? Just give it up and come, come here. And, and throughout the book, they're urged to leave behind these idols and these, these sins that have trapped them, and they refuse. And, and they, they, always, they keep talking about their freedom. They, they want their freedom, which means they just wanted themselves, one said in the book, it said, uh, quote, I'd rather be damned than go along with you. I came here to get my rights, you see. That's why he went, to, that's why he went up there on the bus. Another one said, anyone who wants, anyone, anybody who wants to be rescued, he said, what would there be to do here anyway? Another one said, go away. Can't you see I just want to be alone? I just want to be alone. Leave me alone. That's why Lewis says in the book, he says, look, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All they're in hell, he says, choose it. They want separation from God. They want eternity apart from God. And God said, but gives them what they've always wanted. So where are you in line? Do you really believe in Jesus? Has the, the penny of the gospel dropped where you get the gospel and your heart has been transformed in how you see people around you? You say, what do you, what do, you do from here? You may think, okay, I, I need to, okay, I need to get moving. I gotta, I gotta work on this, right? I, I, don't wanna, I don't want Jesus to put me in the, the, the wrong line. But again, understand you can't earn points 
with Jesus by fixing yourself, pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps, right? Scotch taping some plastic fruit onto the tree of your life and be like, look how different I am. It doesn't work that way. You need a new heart. You need to repent and turn to Jesus. And the solution is always the gospel. It's always the good news. It's news. So let's get the last one, the gospel and the judgment. The motivation for this kind of life that is found here is only in the gospel. You have to see that Jesus is describing you here. Okay, you gotta put yourself into the story. You are the hungry. You are the thirsty. You are the stranger. You are the naked. You are the sick. You are the prisoner, right? You are hungry and thirsty. Think about it this way. Roaming around this world trying to quench the thirst of your soul with money, with sex, with possessions, with possessions, uh, with accolades, positions, and you come up empty every single day. You're wandering around a stranger to God, even the Bible says an enemy of God, and are banging your head up against the world trying to find a way into God, even though you may not describe it that way. You are, you are naked, clothed with nothing but dirty, torn rags, the Bible would say, of your own perceived self-righteousness. You feel the deep uncleanness of the soul and no amount of good works and activity and attendance seems to wipe it clean. You're not only sick in your sin, the Bible's gonna describe us as dead in our sin, Sin is our master, apart from Christ. It holds us captive. And no matter how great that night is, the morning always comes and you have to start all over again, unable to finally find that inconsolable secret deep in your soul to satisfy it. That's why Revelation, Jesus says this in verse, Revelation 3.17, for you say, you say I'm rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. Not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Wow, that's a, that's a tough passage. But here, listen to this, though. Jesus has come along with all of his riches and all of his glory, and he's humbled himself to become you and me, right? That's what happened. He became hungry and thirsty and a stranger and naked and sick and a prisoner. He had, he said it many times, I have no place to, what, lay my head. He cried out from the cross, I thirst he was stripped of all of his clothing as he's put up on the cross. He was rejected by everyone, including his own family. He was held hostage, you would say, by three nails to a cross. My friends, when you come to Jesus, he tears up that little resume that you've built, okay? That little, that, all that righteousness you've built up in the years, you've kind of done that. And he throws you on his back and he goes to a cross and he dies in your stead and he rises again. And in doing that, he defeats sin, death, hell, Satan himself. He defeats all of that for you. You can't do that with your resume. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, Paul summarizes the gospel this way. It's a beautiful summary. He says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, and he was, he had everything, he was God. He is God, yet for your sake, he became poor so that by his poverty, by his losing of everything, you might become rich. It's not speaking of monetary gain here, spiritual, right? He gave up everything for you um, so that you could have all of him. And until you see at the judgment that the only thing required of you at the judgment to pass the judgment is your name, you'll never be saved. If you're still thinking you need a list of things on your resume to impress Jesus, then you are lost. When you get to the end of the book of Revelation, very end of the Bible, there are not only are there two lines, the book of Revelation adds something else. There's two different sets of books. There is a book for, for the people on the right. There's a book with, with just names in it. And there's another volumes of books 
with all of your activities, okay? Listen to how it goes. Revelation 20, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. Books, plural, were opened. All right, and I saw another book opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, plural, according to what they had done. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. It's the book of names. It's a book with your name in it. Not any activity. The only way you get in is your name's there. How do you get your name there? (laughs) By faith and trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ. When you see that all is accomplished by Jesus, that only your name written by faith in Jesus is all that's required of you, then you will be transformed and you will turn around and you will love the unlovable. You'll begin to see people as Jesus saw people. Your heart will lead you, lead your hands and feet to go and serve people. You'll begin to see people like Jesus saw people and your entire heart of selfishness and self-centeredness will begin to be transformed so that you're now selfless, right? So now you become a servant. Jesus said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve Give my life a ransom for many. That's what happens to you. Your life becomes transformed. That's why I love the way Luke 10, 20 puts it. it says, Nevertheless, Jesus says, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. Like, don't, don't be rejoicing over the things that you've done. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Your name. So as we go to communion, the opportunity here is to evaluate, is your name written there? What's the criteria? Do you know? Can you be certain? You can. Have you been transformed by grace? Have you come to faith in the person work of Jesus Christ? Have you been transformed in how you see people, right? It's the, it's the, it, it, it happens. It changes you from the inside out. So as we go to communion, if, if, you're, if you're a time, if you're a follower of Christ and you take evaluation of your own soul, you're able to take that bread, that juice, which is, again, a picture of the body and blood of Jesus broken and poured out for us. We do it in remembrance of him. We do it rejoicing in him. We don't take communion to earn points with God. Just like we don't come to church to earn points with God. We don't sing to earn points with God. We do it as a response of the grace that he's given to us, okay? When you understand that, that's why you take communion, okay? If you don't understand that, and grace doesn't make any sense to you, and you don't know what we're talking about, we would love to talk to you. Love to answer any questions you may have. Okay, let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this passage. It is a very sober one, um, very somber, um, very serious, one that we must look at because, God, it's, it's in the Bible, and it's actually pretty prevalent. Judgment is not a subject that we as Americans like to really necessarily talk about, at least not for ourselves, for others maybe, but not for ourselves. And so, God, it's an opportunity to really to sit back and think, where are we with you? God, I pray for those maybe who are here today that have been checking the box, following the list, doing things that have been expected of them for their whole life, and they've never actually sat down to really reflect on you and what you've done for them. It's just a story to them. It's just something that happened, but they haven't been transformed by you. I pray that, God, you would open eyes today, maybe those who are blind, and they would see for the first time. They would see their need of you, They will respond to you. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for doing it all for us. Thank you for, at the end, saying it is finished. It's done. And may God, our our understanding of that, our embrace of that truth, may that transform us as you've promised it will to be a people, a church of people that love the unlovable, that see people in ways that no one else sees, that cares for people no one else cares about, 
that you become the treasure of our soul, not our jobs, not our money, not our families, not, not our political agendas, whatever it may be, it is you. And would you transform us because of that? And may the gospel go forward because of the truth that we've been transformed by grace. In Jesus' name, amen.